This is Healthcare Now Radio's Trending Now. I'm your host, Jared Johnson. Join me and my guests as we discuss the latest topics that are in the news or getting social media traction in the universe of healthcare and health IT. It's a fast-paced 30 minutes, so sit back and listen as we kick off the show with what's on trend now. Today, I'm speaking with Chris Hemphill, Senior Director of Commercial Intelligence at Wobot Health. Chris, welcome to Trending Now. Wow, thank you, Jared. Uh, I wasn't aware of the fast-paced 30 minutes, so uh, i, I got to get ready for this. I think you were born ready for this, so I don't think you have to do much preparation at all. It's great to have you. Appreciate that. I appreciate the opportunity to uh, be here and uh, speak with you again. You know, what's funny is maybe it's just because you and I know each other, but I feel like we're going to have a conversation that we don't even know completely where it's going to go. And I'm looking forward to that. We're going to stick with a few topics that are what's top of mind for us. And we do have some direction here, but we don't have this nailed down piece by piece. And I like that. I think we're going to go where this conversation is meant to go. So first and foremost, we should help our listeners get to know you a little bit better. What can you tell them about yourself? What would you like our listeners to know about you? Sure thing. Well, first thing I'd like the listeners to know is I'm thankful to be a part of this conversation. I work at a company called Wobot Health, which is focused on making mental health care more accessible for people by using an AI-powered chatbot. The overall idea behind the company is, is radically accessible care. And uh, I came in about a year ago and I, I focus on data science projects and also strategic guidance around AI for healthcare leaders to make sure that the decisions that they're they're focusing on are ethical and effective. I think it's important to point out that you were doing AI before AI was cool. Is that fair to say? Are, are you calling me a hipster? Because uh, I'll, I'll take AI hipster as a title. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. I was hearing about it from you long before anybody else. So I, I do. I just want to point that out. Well, <laughs> that is important. I, I, was, I was joking, but I, I think it's important to lean on folks who have been at this in whatever it was named at the time. Uh, because well, like AI is the, pop, the, the name in popular parlance, but some call it data science, some call it machine learning, some call it statistics. There's all kinds of different flavors and there, there's been conversation about this for years. I think it's important, especially for a healthcare audience, to know some of the folks out there, some of the names of the people out there making things happen, having conversations about ethical and effective implementations. There's folks like uh, Dr. Eric Topal, deep on the healthcare side. He wrote the book, Deep Medicine. There's folks like Dr. Timnit Gebru, who along with uh, Drs. Margaret Mitchell and Dr. Emily Bender produced papers about the ethical framework and considerations and risks behind large language models. So there's lots of just names of people that I want to highlight during this conversation, if we get to that, just, just to give people give people things to anchor on outside of the hype cycle that, that's leading to a lot of misinformation right now. Yeah, 100% on that. And anytime anyone mentions Dr. Topol, for instance, I was just looking back here in my, book shit, my bookcase, right? Like, the patient will see you now uh, that he authored in probably 2014, 2015, which was ushering in the era of democratized medicine where there's health information online for one of the first times ever and documenting what that meant clinically and what it meant for patients and the fact that not everything came down to this hierarchical order of medicine that had existed for hundreds of years. It was quite the read for me. I remember it was pretty transformational. So it is worth mentioning some of the people that you mentioned to, like you said, have an anchor 
outside of that hype cycle. That's really important. People want to know, like, wait, who actually knows what they're talking about here? So it's great they mentioned some of these folks because you know I can I can validate certainly uh, the names you mentioned and and just mention that it's worth going there because. We all need to know who has an opinion that that should be valued, or a, not even, more than opinion. You know, experience, research, mm-hmm. a point of view that's more valid than others. And absolutely, those are those are great places to start. Yeah, I actually hadn't heard of the patient. We'll see you now until we actually have a show at Wobot Health called uh, Meeting of the Minds, and our founder, Dr. Ali Darcy, she interviewed Dr. Topal no more than like a month or two ago. So we were able to get some of the, like there's an evolution of thinking around the patient will see you now then into uh, deep medicine and into that more recent conversation that was focused around this paradigm around generative AI. So I thought that was really interesting to hear from him. You bet, you bet. Well, I think we should get into generative AI in general here in a moment. We do like to start out with a trending topic here, and I feel like your recent presentation at one of the many conferences that you've attended is a great place for us to start because I do think it's on a topic that's on trend right now. Uh, you were able to speak at HMPS, the what is it, Healthcare Marketing and Physician Strategies Summit in April. Wow, you you navigated that tongue twister quickly. Whew, wow, whew. you know I you know that's that's one of those that, it doesn't leap off the tongue, but <laughs> but it's a great conference. And you spoke on a panel. I believe it was titled "Mental Health: A Call to Action." I wonder if you could just summarize the panel itself and then what you spoke about specifically. Sure thing. So again, I hate to overuse the word thankful, but I I was really honored to be a part of uh, the the panel, which uh, Katie Fellin was the moderator and she had assembled a a panel of myself from Wobot, Dr. Hani Talibi, who is the, uh, I believe the chief clinical officer for the Meadows Mental Health Policy uh, and Research Institute. And uh, Dr. Aaron Novotny, who is the uh, director of health economics for BCBS Arkansas. There was a, a wide range of perspectives represented myself in digital health, Dr. Talibi on the policy side, and Dr. Novotny coming from the, their perspective of like operating with, uh, uh, within a health plan. And the conversation, we started off with some grim realities around the lack of access and the, the implications around that, One the, around the lack, lack of access to mental health, mental health care. One major point that stuck out to me was when Dr. Talibi brought up the point that when we think about mental health, it's actually it's a reflection of a pediatric issue. I had never heard someone like explicitly say that mental health is it stems from from a pediatric issue, but that like the reality is people tend to go undiagnosed or or ignored for up to for around eight years before they get a proper bi- uh, diagnosis on their mental health condition. So there are things that stem from childhood that go all the way into adulthood that could have been much better, much less strain on people's lives and strain on our overall system if we were prepared to address these things when they came up. So the conversation, I think it's important to start off with, with grim realities such as like people who with unaddressed mental health care needs showing up in the ED or causing more strain on, on the system or not being able to follow up on, on their meds and other prescriptions. Like it draws that connection between the problems of mental health connecting with the whole person. So 
the conversation as it ebbed, ebbed and flowed, we discussed a newer concept around uh, what's called behavioral health integration, which I thought was an exciting thing to d- discuss with the audience because it's not 100%. Like, uh, there's research, there's evidence that backs behavioral health integration approaches, but it's not fully known or permeated through the market. So it was a a great opportunity to uh, educate the room on that topic, as well as hear back and forth from the leaders and executives there on why they were in the room in the first place and just their their overall questions about what these things might look like within their organizations. Well, I think as you mentioned, you know, those in the room, I think it's worth mentioning who was in the room, right? Attendees at HMPS tend to be in a non-clinical leadership role, fairly senior leadership. So these are people who are being asked to help address needs like access, but maybe from a what from a strategic or marketing or digital standpoint, not necessarily a clinical role. Almost all of them, probably all of them work with clinical leaders. And so that is a difference. Like that's a part of integrating something like access to behavioral health services that is an important part of the conversation that sometimes it can be easy to be led by the tech player or the clinical players in the room. And so I think it's worth mentioning that the room that was there, the audience impacted where the conversation was coming from. So when you're able to talk about mental health equity and access, or you're able to to discuss why it's important to know that this is a pediatric issue, most likely. I mean, that's I find that fascinating, quite frankly. So just recognizing where the considerations are or what the perspective is based in, I think it was worth worth mentioning because this isn't just a topic that affects one area of healthcare or one area of our society. We're talking about the mental health and well-being, which means we're dealing with the overall health and well-being of everybody in society. So it's not something that just somebody who's suffering in a certain way is impacted by. And I think that's that's one of the things that struck me was your ability, the panel's ability to address such a far-reaching topic that impacts so many different people in so many different ways. It's different than any other type of care, I feel like, for that reason, because this is talking about everybody in society. So I don't know if there if it came up organically there in the conversation or elsewhere, you know, out in the hallway, people coming up and talking with you later. But were there comments just about how this was a helpful topic, not just in their work, but like in their life, in society, in the mental and behavioral health status of our nation. I just feel like there were bigger implications. And and I wanted to give you praise for attempting to address such a big topic. Let's dig into that one because uh, I was really surprised by the results of a survey that we did ahead of the session because we wanted to know why people were, were coming into the room. We wanted to know ahead of time so we put out a poll for the uh, people that were planning to attend asking what their personal, what their motivation was for joining and having a conversation with us. So we asked about things like, are there organizational initiatives around addressing uh, behavioral health? Is this like a uh, professional interest? But the other question that we asked is, well, or is this a personal interest? And it was, oh, you can only choose one option. And the majority of people, I believe over 60%, of the attendees there indicated that they were there for 
personal reasons. So even though you can point to things like the overall costs that are associated with people with unmanaged uh, mental health conditions versus people who, who are having those conditions managed, it's still a personal battle. I didn't I didn't have the opportunity to get, to get into a ton of detail with everyone in the room, but there were people that that did have conversations shortly after talking about personal stories with their families and things that that had been going on that all the way down to like their relationship with their children and things like that. So it points to some of the empathy of the folks in the room to look within and see the personal challenges that might be brought on by stigmatization of healthcare, or maybe a loved one has a lack of access and you see their deter- their condition deteriorating over the years. Like it, it was a very powerful to know that it was a personal, not just business reason for attending that session. For, for a lot of people. It really is, isn't it? I think that's, that is unique. That's unique about healthcare in general, but specifically these sides of, of healthcare that we're discussing here today. If you're just now tuning in, I'm Jared Johnson, and you're listening to Trending Now on Healthcare Now Radio. I'm speaking with Chris Hemphill, Senior Director of Commercial Intelligence at Wobot Health. Let's get back into it. Chris, we were just speaking about some of the topics that came up at HMPS, and I think it's worth mentioning how a lot of the topics that you focus on a lot personally and post about a lot frequently are all tied together to me. They're all connected. A couple of those topics are AI ethics and policy. Another one is racism and bias in healthcare. Maybe we can just go through these one by one and we'll get to generative AI too because like you mentioned, there's discussion about it right now. But from a, an ethics and policy standpoint, do you feel like we're at a point where a critical mass of the industry understands the ethics around AI in healthcare? Like, like, do we, for the most part, know what we should be doing? Or if not, you know, what, what might get us there? Like, wh- when do we get to that point, I guess, if we're not there yet? Well, the, the, we're at a point where the issue is forced or going to be forced in a lot of scenarios. I've been on this, uh, been, been tooting this horn since like uh, 2019 on the ethics piece. It is a, there, there's a well-known study where in this was published in uh, Science in 2019, where an algorithm in place at a uh, healthcare institution was one-third as likely to prescribe black patients into a particular program to manage uh, high-risk needs, they were a third as likely to recommend that system to black patients who were equally as sick, and that's measured in terms of the number of comorbidities, equally as sick as white patients. It's been kind of a, a facet of conversation in some leadership circles, lots of scientific circles, but when we think about what we're doing with algorithms and the things that we're automating, the fact that that algorithm was reflecting past biases in terms of income and access to healthcare with such a big interest in algorithms in place now with this growing interest and hype around AI, I think that it has to force the conversation for healthcare grade materials to be developed because you enter some scenarios where like when it comes to how a particular platform might share data with uh, with another company to generate responses etc now we're at a at an endpoint where we have to take a really serious look at 
data sharing and privacy policies when it comes to some of these applications uh, applications coming out. We have to take a, a strong look at what kinds of uses these are being employed in, the potential for misinformation given some use cases, and a really thorough understanding of what types of results to expect with what applications. So I hope that gives a little light on the question. I, I, I might have rambled a bit, but I'm just trying to, to say that I don't think that we're at a critical mass of people understanding the ethical issues and implications and how these things are developed. I don't think we're quite at that qu- uh, critical mass, but I do think that we're at a point where it's going to get harder and harder to like cross a certain line when, when it comes to like ethical violations within the, within uh, within these systems that people are deploying. So what might make an organization more likely to understand those ethics quicker? Like the the organizations that that are further along that journey, are there any characteristics, just a leader who might understand the need for it better? I, I'm wondering if it just needs to come from a certain department, or I'm, I'm just wondering if, there, if there's any pattern in terms of recognizing what types of organizations are more likely to to get along that journey faster? I think it comes down to individual leaders and their interests. It comes down to if there are top-down charters that address, like top-down charters and cultures that are focusing on addressing serving the underserved, doing right by populations that that are, are normally ignored. So a couple of examples that come to mind are UCSF and uh, Duke Health. The reason those organizations come to mind is not that there's any kind of demography or firmographics that they that that are similar or anything like that. They're they're two very different or- organizations on different sides of the U- United States, but they both had leaders that are either willing to stand up and develop algorithms under a safety lens and take into account. Factors within algorithms, factors within how different groups re- uh, receive care and are are like culturally attuned to seeking care, they take into account those factors before deploying certain algorithms. You can hear a, a bit of a deep dive on it from a recent podcast that came out from uh, Trade Offs. This podcast is no more than like two weeks old, but they had a deep dive with one of the developers of some of the algorithms that are that are in place at Duke Health. And they were talking about some things like how they check and uh, scan for potential racial bias within the algorithm, which that's a gigantic step in, uh, in its own. There's a lot of organizations that don't even acknowledge the possibility and therefore don't ask those questions when they're developing algorithms. These folks do. But algorithms are not enough. One thing that they found is that one example is because of language barriers, Hispanic patients had a much harder time and it took a much longer time for them to be admitted for certain procedures. They were talking about how they make considerations in those cases because they're, they're having to identify needs and complications quickly with uh, the sepsis algorithm, a sepsis detection algorithm they, they, they were deploying, but they spoke about some of the the details like like some of the things that you don't think about from a cultural perspective that also factor in like it's not just a full tech solution to these issues there's also a lot of cultural considerations and how you deliver things that that needs to be considered when you're thinking about the overall ai in healthcare paradigm i like that because i think it speaks to just the need to keep the momentum going i think our society it's very safe to say over the last few years especially post post lockdown peak era of the pandemic 
our society has opened up conversations that weren't open before that about things like acknowledging the possibility, like you said, of, of having some bias in an algorithm or just bias in, in data that, that wasn't even considered prior to that. And so I feel like there's this need to continue that momentum and not let it fade out of the spotlight. This conversation needs to keep happening and we need to get people to that next level of understanding so that it can recognize the impact on daily lives. So that kind of comes back to the this whole topic of, of racism and bias in healthcare, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Because the bias that appears in data, what's that a reflection of? Well, in order for data to exist in the first place, someone has to have an encounter. For someone to have that encounter, they have to be able to afford it. They have to feel comfortable enough to come and uh, request the service. And on the other end, the practitioner has to admit them for the, the service that they, they need. In all of those instances, there are opportunities for bias, such as affordability, like just class-based affordability for certain services and things like that. There's the potential that if you are a, a black woman, for example, then it's very likely that people are going to underestimate the amount of pain that you say you have. There, there's, there was actually a, a nursing guideline from 2014 that was recently, there, there's a screenshot of it that, that recently went out on Twitter that talked about different expressions of pain by a race. And it was extremely offensive. It was terrible. But those are the types of things that, that those are the types of biases that then reflect themselves in the data that are used to make predictions on who's most likely needing what services and we say garbage in, garbage out is a prime example of what happens. Biased data resulting in biased algorithms. And folks who aren't asking the questions about how to reverse that trend will find themselves perpetuating bias. I'm so glad that you continue to keep this conversation alive, especially this aspect of it. Are there parts of healthcare that seem to be more receptive to this message and acknowledge it and at least desire to make some progress or make some changes? Are there, I don't know if there's a certain part of a team or part of an organization that, that tends to resonate with it more and understand it more? A lot of the healthcare leaders that I've spoken with welcome the conversation. I really can't think of a time that I uh, talked about this subject with someone and they tried to cut me off or like disavow the problem or anything like that. Those people are definitely out there and I hear them talking and everything like, I guess I just haven't gotten to them. Had the, had this conversation a a heck of a lot with people on the uh, healthcare marketing side and others on clinical delivery side. And I honestly haven't gotten a lot of pushback person to person. I can't point to it there. I mean, I can say something like racism is as racism does and focus on like maybe the outputs from those organizations. But honestly, like when, when having these conversations, I think that maybe I've just been lucky enough to talk to people that, that want to have an open ear to the nature of the problem and are open to considering certain types of solutions to it. That's great. It's great to hear. And yeah, hopefully I wasn't leading the witness there too, too much, right? I mean, I was, I was genuinely curious, you know, so that's, it's encouraging to hear that the conversations are, are going that way and that the people are acknowledging, myself included, right? You know, that, that all of us are, are acknowledging an, an evolution of this conversation. So I appreciate that. Final word or final topic here before we go, 
Chris, I'd love to hear, uh, we mentioned generative AI, any just top of mind thoughts or perspectives that you've heard or have found yourself when we're dealing with where it fits into healthcare? I really believe a lot of this conversation is applicable to the uh, like paradigm of uh, like large language models and models being used for generating images, video, text, and, and things like that. I, I think that a lot of this conversation is applicable because what I would hope that listeners do is call into question how certain models were trained and start thinking about what to expect from an approach given the training approach, the commercialization strategy of the company that's deploying the algorithm, the very strategy or, or business goals that they have. All of these things, like it's not just a, uh, a tech question with these. It's a question of the healthcare organization strategy itself. So I would hope that people take some of that message and, and apply it to the, to the generative landscape. One big point that just came up is uh, there's a, a researcher that I know who was uh, submitting a paper. And when submitting the paper for the first time, they were asked if any portion of the paper was uh, generated by a large language model such as ChatGPT. And if the author was willing to take full accountability for those sections. I thought that that was a uh, really interesting, like a really interesting first time thing to hear. And it made me think about the comfort that people want to have, hope to have with these approaches. And I'm, I'm here to take a little bit of that comfort away. Because if, if you have scenarios, an attorney, someone who has gone to law school and should understand how to do this kind of research and everything like that, but there's just an example of this attorney who in his filings did a lot of the work with uh, ChatGPT and was referencing papers and claims and things like that didn't exist because he didn't go and uh, do the backup work. So it's a really powerful call to action that you have to consider how, like if you're using a generative approach, you have to consider how it's being used, what the application is. And if it is anything that is where it was generating facts or supposedly doing research for you, it is on you to back that, to back it up and, and go in and really go and do the research and make sure that whatever outputs you're, you're getting are actually backed up by reality. I would actually not recommend using it for a lot of the use cases where you, where you hear about these flubs. Like I would never recommend someone to use it to like generate, to generate some idea of what a legal code is or, or, or anything like that because it's really is that's. They might say that that's what it's designed to do, but it, it, it really isn't. It's, use, it's, it's playing a very complex word association game, not using a ground truth. So for, for things that, that depend on having a, a ground truth that you don't know, you, you want to defer to experts or develop your own expertise and do your own research before using those types of approaches. But my big high horse is the fact that an algorithm generated it does, does not absolve you from how you use those uh, use those words. The problems uh, and uh, the, like the the misinformation that falls on the people who made the that falls on the human being who made the decision on what to say, how to say it. If ChatGPT was uh, was a part of it, Sam Altman's not going to pay the bill on your lawsuit. I love it. What a perfect place for us to wrap up here, Chris. I love the thought that <laughs> we're taking comfort away because. That's where we are right now. So it's, it's absolutely yeah. where we are. Love it. 
Thanks so much for, for helping us explore these topics today, Chris. And with that, that's a wrap for today. I want to thank my guest, Chris Hemphill. To learn more about Wobot, you can find them at www.wobothealth.com. That's wo with an E, so W-O-E-B-O-T, health.com. You can learn more about today's show on our program page on healthcarenowradio.com. And make sure you follow the show's hashtag, TrendingNowHC, and follow me on Twitter at Jared Piano. Until next time, if it's happening in healthcare and it's now, it's on Trending Now. 